0: Last week, if you were here, we heard the story of God's remarkable providence in the life of Joseph. What Joseph's brothers meant for evil in condemning him and selling him to slavery in Egypt, God turned for their good, to preserve many alive during the coming great famine. Now God has brought Jacob and his family from Canaan into Egypt, saying to him, Do not fear to go down to Egypt for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt and will surely bring you up again. So like a tiny mustard seed of the kingdom of God, the 75 people in Jacob's extended family are planted in the fertile Egyptian soil. And there for generations, they multiply and multiply in peace and security because God was with them. So the book of Genesis ends on a hopeful note. But then, as the book of Exodus begins, we hear that there arose a new king in Egypt, one who did not know Joseph. And so we we know that things are about to take a turn for the worse. There arose a Pharaoh, that is, who forgets Egypt's debt of gratitude to Joseph. He forgets the fact that all of Egypt not to mention he himself and the pharaohs before him owe their lives to Joseph and his God for saving them during the years of the great famine. And so this pharaoh begins to view Joseph's family, his growing family, the people of God, as a threat. He suspects them of having loyalties to a foreign power. And in that respect, he's at least partly right. They are at least theoretically loyal to another king, to the Lord God, to Yahweh, the king and God of Israel. And so Pharaoh exerts all of his cunning to attack that family who is the very cause of Egypt's prosperity and security, not realizing that he's sawing off the branch that he's sitting on. Now, if you've ever heard of an autoimmune response that a body can have, you kind of see what's going on here. Fifteen years ago, my own mom received an organ transplant that saved her life. But to this day, she still has to receive immune-suppressing medication so that her own white blood cells don't attack this foreign organ as though it were an outsider and an enemy. Not noticing, not realizing that that organ is inside of her for the preservation of her own life. And so a similar sort of thing is going on now in Egypt. Now about Pharaoh. It's important to know that this was not just some secular tyrant or totalitarian despot. There were no such things in those days. Egypt's Pharaoh at that time was seen to be literally the human manifestation of the Egyptian sun god, Re, the god of order and of governance. He was what the Bible would call a demon. Pharaoh was hailed as the son of Ra by his people, and he expected not only his people's civic obedience and, subs- and subservience, but also their cultic worship. It's no surprise that his crown, the symbol of his authority, is that famous cobra serpent. I'm sure you know the one. Biblically, Pharaoh is here an image of the devil that great and ancient serpent who by his cunning tempted our first parents in the garden, who disguised himself as an angel of light. Satan, envious of the love and honor that God shows to lowly human beings, wants to usurp the place of God's throne in human hearts. His aim is to kill, steal, and destroy as much as he can, by whatever means he can, for as long as he can, until his time runs out. And of course, faithful Israel is an image of the seed of God's grace and activity in the world in every age and at all times, just as the New Testament calls the church the Israel of God. So then, this is a story not just of some historical event that took place 3,500 years ago. After all, if that's all that it was, it would have been forgotten by all but a few niche historians long ago. It is rather the story of spiritual warfare taking place in every age and place, of how the devil opposes the grace of God in the world, and how God turns even what the enemy meant for evil to our good. Again, this is the power of biblical narrative It has that power to reveal shocking and powerful insights about our lives and about our world at every age. These scenes of what's going on behind the scene, behind the visible. So we have two points to consider about this passage. First, Pharaoh's three-part plan to destroy the people of God. And second, how we can, with the grace of God, resist him. So, let's begin by looking carefully at Pharaoh's three-part plan to stamp out the people of God. Here's what he does. First, he'll make slaves of them by keeping them focused on toilsome labor and cheap pleasures. Second, he'll exploit their divisions to turn them against one another and to weaken them. And finally, when they're weak enough or when all else fails, he'll use outright violence and persecution. So here's how it starts in the text. It says, They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they made the people of Israel serve with rigor and made their lives bitter with hard service. Why do you think he did that? It wasn't just to profit off of their free slave labor or to strengthen Egypt with their building projects. That was just a side project. His real aim was to keep the people of God, to keep them so focused on the daily grind, so dependent upon the cheap pleasures that they had for relief, that they had no time or energy or margin to look up, to look to God, to remember God, to remember their identity as the people of God. He didn't just want them as slaves externally. He wanted them as slaves internally. Because even God cannot free a people who do not want to be free, who want to remain slaves. This first part of Pharaoh's plan was his most successful by far. As a spoiler alert, uh, even long after God eventually gets the Israelites out of Egypt, he is unable to get the Egypt out of the Israelites they remain too contented with this world and its pleasures. Now, we see the second part of Pharaoh's plan. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, notice that, their own midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah, and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. He's turning them against each other. Specifically, he's empowering their women to undermine their own men. Now, it's important to know this about tyrannies. Tyrants, like Pharaoh, view any kind of intermediate authority as a threat. They're like the consummate micromanagers. I'm sure everybody here has had a boss like that at some time or another. They want to impose their will uniformly on every level of society. The Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, I think, sums it up personally in his infamous motto. The state, nothing but the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. To establish this, it's not enough just to increase the state's power. You also have to undermine every other level of social bond and trust, whether civic organizations, churches, or, yes, families. And what better way to do that than to encourage them to do it to themselves, divide and conquer? It might come as a surprise, but most successful would-be tyrants and despots throughout history, if not all of them, actually do the vast majority of their dirty work in this way, by turning their own people against each other. It's far too expensive to hire enough bureaucrats and security forces to d- uh, to report on their own population to censor themselves or to censor them, and to propagandize them, it suits a totalitarian, uh, sorry a totalitarian state much better to have the people reporting on their own neighbors for the cheap pleasure of it for censoring or propagandizing themselves to get into the leaders good graces. One pharaoh can only do so much, but a society with a million micro-internalized pharaohs. Well, that's his dream scenario. And pharaoh, or Satan, rather, is ever ready to capitalize on our most sensitive divisions and to target our most vulnerable areas. Part of the curse of the fall, which, of course, he knows, was the corrupting of relations between male and female, from one of harmonious love and support and encouragement to a battle for power. Uh, To translate that curse, in short, the man will try to dominate the woman, and the woman will attempt to manipulate the man. That should seem pretty familiar. Pharaoh gets this and he tries to play the sides against each other by handing one side a stick of dynamite. Of course, it's clear why he's targeting infants. No one is more vulnerable and defenseless. But why does he go after the boys in particular, you might be wondering. The boys meant effectively annihilating Israel's identity as a people within a generation, stripping them of their ability to resist when he attacks in force. Back in those days, sons were expected to carry on a family's name and culture, and they remained in their father's house their whole lives. But daughters would be married into other families, meaning that these Hebrew women could just be absorbed into Egyptian families and Egyptian culture, and Israel would be no more. Now, we might also wonder, why would any Hebrew midwife agree to do such a horrible thing to her own people? Of course, I assume that Pharaoh at least implicitly threatened consequences for their refusal, or perhaps he also offered great reward for their compliance, which is part of what makes the resistance so commendable. But maybe Pharaoh also knew that these women had some right to feel resentful. Maybe they were seriously mistreated or undervalued by their society and their own families. It's even likely that was the case. I can imagine Pharaoh saying to them, you could actually be somebody in Pharaoh's Egypt. We would value you and treat you right. You could be as gods deciding who goes and who stays. Familiar lines, right? And then there's the third and final phase of his plan, outright violent persecution. Now Pharaoh commands his own people in the text, saying, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. It's like the story of the flood in Genesis 6 all over again, except this time targeted specifically to the Hebrew people, the remnant of God's grace in the world. So enslaved by toil and empty pleasures, turned against one another, and pressured by threats and direct persecution. It's pretty dark stuff. It's unquestionably demonic. But it's the stuff of the real world, isn't it? If you've been keeping up with things the last few decades, this storyline should be sounding pretty familiar. Almost like we're following a script. Almost like these patterns just repeat themselves over and over again with only the surface details changing. Just like in the book of Exodus, the West, at large, has forgotten instead of gratitude to its Joseph, rather to its Christian origin and heritage, those uh, values and principles that have made us what we are and have preserved us in times of great trial. Without realizing it, we're quickly sawing off the very branch that we're sitting on and can't seem to recognize what kind of fall we might be in for. The rest of the steps follow one after another like clockwork. First, detached from any eternal perspective, the culture becomes enslaved to worldly labor and achievement, and even far more so to cheap pleasures and entertainments, which buzz continually at our fingertips. Now, a solid majority of Westerners could care less about the gospel or about God if you ask them. Then, the enemy capitalizes on our divisions, both within the culture and within the church itself, seeking to emasculate them both by means of our own midwives. How? By taking the uniquely Christian virtues, feminine virtues, I might add, of compassion, love, and non-judgment, isolating them from the total picture of the Christian life, elevating them out of proportion, and then using them as weapons against traditional Christian faith and morality. Now, even in the church, it's considered strange or offensive not just to name sin, but even to expect the faithful to make significant sacrifices to combat their disordered desires by fasting, tithing, or setting aside time in their busy days to pray. I could go into a lot more detail, of course, but I think you can fill in many of the blanks for yourselves. All that's left is step three if that's even necessary. For the aim of the enemy is, one way or another, to render us completely passive to his desires, that Christians would just melt into the wider culture and become totally unrecognizable as the people of God, that the Hebrews would just become Egyptians, that Christians would just become the world. So what can we do in the face of such great and subtle pressure? How can we preserve that seed of our faith and pass it on intact to the next generations, especially if persecution does become active and brutal? Well, first of all, we need to imitate the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, with their courageous faith, arming ourselves with the courage that comes from having an eternal perspective. Because they feared God, they were able to stand up to Pharaoh. This is why we proclaim in church every week the Nicene Creed, to remind ourselves, I believe, I put my trust and my faith in Christ, who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. I put my trust in the resurrection of the dead and in the life of the world to come. Secondly, We can imitate Moses's parents by exercising wise parental foresight. If you look carefully at the text, you see that that little reed basket that Moses's parents make for their baby is described in a way that's supposed to remind us of Noah's ark. Just like the ark, Moses's basket of bulrushes is covered with bitumen and pitch that is coated with a water-resistant resin or tar. God moved Moses' parents to build a little ark, like a tiny seed that could serve as a beginning of a renewed world, kept safe from the chaotic, billowy waves of the Nile. But what does it mean to build an ark in our own time? St. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the early church fathers, offers some powerful insights here. He sees the waves of the Nile as being symbolic, as an image of the chaotic passions that rage within us, that is those disordered and sinful desires and emotions that threaten to dominate us at various times, making us passive to their demands. And the ark or the basket that Moses is in, he saw as symbolic of what he called an education in discipline. That is, what enables you to keep your head above the waters when the passions rage within and when tyrants threaten without is a disciplined training in the values and virtues of the kingdom of God. I think it's no secret that this is the mission that God has put on our hearts for Trinity's school, and it's what we hope to accomplish with his grace and help and guidance. We mean to build a little waterproof arc training this next generation to love and seek things eternal more than things that pass away. To know and love God personally and to know the truth of the gospel so that when the billowy waves come, when the confusion and chaos of the world's seductions and falsehoods beat upon them and their own desires burn within them, they can stand firmly upon the rock safely planted within that seaworthy vessel of the church as a faithful remnant that God can use like a seed to renew generations to come. Our prayer is that they can grow up to be like Moses, drawn out of the water, preserved by God to lead their generation into the knowledge of Christ, into the true freedom that can only be found in him. Finally, We need to take courage and keep our eyes on what God is doing, even in our darkest hours. Notice in our passage how the grace of God undermines Pharaoh's plan at every step of the way, even when he seems most victorious. When Pharaoh attempts to make the Israelites' lives bitter with hard service and slavery, God multiplies them even more. When Pharaoh attempts to convince the Hebrew midwives to kill the male babies, that not only craftily resist his will, but then God protects them and multiplies their families. And when Pharaoh commands his own people to drown the Hebrew boys, who should float into his palace but the baby Moses? The very one God would use, would call to deliver his people Israel out of Egypt, the one who would bring about Pharaoh's downfall. And he is taken in by none other than Pharaoh's own daughter, who unwittingly pays Moses' birth mother to nurse him at Pharaoh's expense. He bankrolls her maternity leave. It's awesome. Look, as hard as it is sometimes to see, and it is hard to see in the valley, God is always acting in this way, always subtly undermining the enemy's plans. A seemingly chance encounter here, a passing word there, a book recommendation, a faithful Christian working behind enemy lines, you name it. There's always something setting the scene, setting the stage for Pharaoh's eventual undoing. But if your eyes aren't open, you'll miss it. Unfortunately, we often only see these signs for what they were in hindsight, but God would have us learn to trust him To spot these signs even in the valleys. So keep an eternal perspective like the Hebrew midwives, exercise prudential foresight like Moses' parents, and trust and keep your eyes on what he is up to even when things get dark. That's the recipe for surviving in dark times. Like Joseph and like Moses, we might find ourselves in these troubling times wondering Where is God in all of this? How could he let this happen to his own people? And like Joseph and Moses, we might still have years of hardship to endure. Things might get worse before they get better. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But God, and this is key, but God is with us just like he was with them. He's ever working around us and through us in surprising ways for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He is ever undermining the purposes and plans of the devil and working to bring us not temporal comfort and convenience, but true deliverance, glory, and eternal salvation. And with that still, small voice, he calls out for one who has the ears to hear, for one who has the courage to respond, saying, Go, And tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But more on that next time. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.